Our smartphones, smartwatches, and other mobile devices provide us with a growing number of convenient distractions that can interfere with our productivity and learning. In this episode, we examine one approach to help students better understand how to focus their attention. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Michelle Miller. Michelle is the director of the First Year Learning Initiative, professor of psychological sciences, and the president's distinguished teaching fellow at Northern Arizona University. Her research interests include memory, attention, and student success in the early college career. She co-curated the First Year Learning Initiative at Northern Arizona University and is active in course redesign, serving as a redesign scholar for the National Center for Academic Transformation. She is the author of Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology, and has written about evidence-based pedagogy and scholarly as well as general interest publications. Welcome back, Michelle. Hi, it's so great to be here. We're happy to talk to you again. Our teas today are... Well, it is still technically morning here in Arizona where I'm speaking from, so I am going with homebrewed coffee today with a whole lot of sugar and a little bit of cream. I have an orange Cylon tea today. Cylon? Weren't they on Battlestar Galactica? How do you say it? I believe it's Ceylon, and I have ginger peach black tea. So we invited you here to talk about your Attention Matters project, Michelle. Could you tell us a little bit about the project? This is one of my favorite projects and really the most unique one that I've worked on, really going back to as long as I've been at Northern Arizona University. Attention Matters came about like this after I had wrapped up writing Minds Online, teaching effectively with technology, I was really just still so engaged in this interest in disseminating cognitive psychology and cognitive science and pulling out those key principles that we can all use in our lives and can make human well-being better and have all these great applications and especially applications in teaching and learning environments. So you can probably guess that it has to do with attention and attentional processes in the mind and in the brain and how those play out in some different situations, especially with teaching and learning. Basically, the idea is that we do need to raise student awareness and really raise all of our awareness about how things like digital distraction, the smartphones, the alerts, the temptations that are always there when we're online, all those can impact teaching and learning and things like memory as well. I had been really interested in finding ways to get that stuff out to students. So there were some people at my institution at NAU who knew that I was interested in that and that I really liked talking to students really directly about what they knew about attention, how things like attention and memory really work, addressing some myths and misconceptions that people tend to have about their own attention. So I was interested in getting that out to students and faculty who knew that I did that would come to me and say, hey, can you come and talk to my students about this? And I had kind of put together this PowerPoint presentation and really interactive stuff where I could pull down some video clips and interactive demonstrations off the web and we could actually really get a discussion rolling about this. 
And so that was my idea. I was kind of going around with my little traveling show from class to class to get this out to students. And it's obviously not terribly scalable for me to do that. I mean, how many students can I really reach that way? But I still really like doing it. So I was talking about some of these ideas with colleagues at one of our teaching day events at NAU. A lot of institutions have days like these, and they're just wonderful. They're days when projects like this really get started. And I was talking to one of my most dynamic and really respected colleagues that I have at NAU, and that's John Doherty. He is a brilliant instructional designer who now works with the library at our institution, but has held these roles for years at NAU. And he said, you know, have you thought about putting this online? Have you thought about finding a way to make this an accessible online resource so that instead of you having to take your show out to different classes every semester, they can drop in and complete some of these? And we started talking about what would that look like? How would we do it? Let's put this together. We had no funding. There was no official initiative behind this. We just jumped in and decided to do this. And he looped in some other really generous colleagues who contributed from our e-learning center. And we put this together. I guess we'll be talking some more about exactly how it's configured. But we created this project and we've kept it going to this day. So this exists as an online resource at Northern Arizona University. I've also shared it with dozens of other institutions around the country and a few around the world. And at least one has turned it into their own module that works in their learning management system. It did win an Effective Practice Award from the Online Learning Consortium in 2015, and we were really, really proud of that. And I've written about it in a couple of other articles and publications, including one that came out a few years ago in Inside Higher Ed that got some nice feedback. So that's how it started. How long does it take for students to complete this module? Well, it's a module that self-enrolls, so they don't have to pay. There's no extensive sign-up time or anything like that. And it does take about one to two hours for students to work through what's an online sequence of different activities, discussions that they post in, and other types of reflections and self-assessment. So it is something that works quite well as an extra credit resource. And that's exactly how it's perpetuated in its current form at NAU. So faculty can voluntarily opt to incorporate it as an extra credit activity in an existing class anywhere in the curriculum. It tends to be particularly popular with our STEM teachers who have these large science and foundational science and mathematics courses, but anybody can use it. And yeah, then students put in a few hours and they get this experience that they're really not going to get anywhere else in that class. What do students find the most surprising about this module? Well, let's see. You're picking up on a theme that we really did try to work into the design of the module itself, that element of surprise that we typically know a lot less about how our attention works than we think. We take in a lot less than we assume or believe that we are. And so time and again, that's exactly what we ask students. What surprised you about this demonstration? Students are surprised at how much can get past them when they are looking at, say, one aspect of a visual scene, but not paying attention to the whole thing. And you're going to say that I'm going to be kind of weaseling out and talking around some of these issues, some of these demonstrations do depend on the element of surprise. So I don't want to talk too much about exactly what students are looking for in these different displays. Some of our more key demonstrations in this module have to do with some phenomena that most people, even if they don't know the technical term, they've seen something about it before. So one is the change blindness effect. And this has to do with 
the fact that when we are paying attention to one aspect of a visual scene, like we're looking at somebody's doing it with their hands, or we're looking at, say, a car and not something else, the background of a street scene, we remember very little from moment to moment. And that's why if somebody is, say, momentarily distracted, or they just are really focused on one part of it, they can miss these huge visual changes. And then with multimedia, we can rewind and show you, oh, hey, here's what you missed. And it's just shocking. And it's something that is a very robust effect. You don't have to have these perfectly controlled lab conditions. It happens pretty frequently, very reliable. So this makes a very good demonstration of attention and how attention works. We stake a lot in these change blindness effects, and those are very surprising. And so students time and again will say, I was surprised that I missed X, Y, and Z out of this thing that I saw. And when they rewound it, I just couldn't believe that it got past me. Seems like this is a technique that pickpockets use pretty frequently. <laughs> yes, it is. It actually, yes, it can be. And I was actually pickpocketed when I was abroad last year, too. It's something that can happen in a real scene. It happens visually. We are really subject to attention. And actually, if you'd like to, for people who'd like to read a lot more, would like to do a deeper dive on this, there's actually some really fascinating work on how stage magicians use this as well. So this is something that stage magicians have really known about in a different kind of arena for many, many years and is a very key aspect of what they do. So if you're familiar with the concept of misdirection, it, it ties into that. So this is something very close to my heart because a former colleague from NAU named Anthony Barnhart is himself a very skilled stage magician. And he is also a PhD who works in visual attention. So a lot of his work plays those out. So exactly. It's something that we could all really get excited about. There are these neat connections in so many different areas that are very, very relatable. So this is part of the fun of bringing attention and attention research out into this area to our students. I want to put in a plug for another podcast that came out on April 25th from the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. There was a discussion on that where Bonnie Stachowiak was talking about something she used to demonstrate. So it won't be one of the demonstrations she used where she played some audio to students of a recording where there were three separate conversations going on, and she asked them to interpret it, and they couldn't recall much of anything. But then she divided them up, and she asked some of them to focus on one conversation, others to focus on the other, and others to focus on the third. And then they were able to reproduce pretty much everything. But there was that issue of being able to focus on particular things, and that focus attention, I think, is an important component to that. It's not visual imagery, but it's still, I think, the same sort of processing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is the real fun of teaching something like an attention module, which I get to do since I'm a, a psychology professor, because there are these neat interactive demonstrations. So those are the types of things that, besides just the multimedia and these neat demonstrations of things like change blindness that are out there on the web, I was able to kind of dive into my repertoire of those demonstrations of trying to focus when you're distracted and how different competing inputs can take over and that affects your memory of which and interpretation. All these things I was able to pull out of my teaching repertoire and think about how could these be put online into this really massive course that students can come into and can you make that work? And using those to, instead of trying to teach theoretical concepts about attention, to raise students' awareness of an investment of that idea of being good stewards of their own attentional resources, to realize that, yeah, things like learning by osmosis don't really happen, <laughs> that we need focused attention in order to learn, and that we aren't always aware in the moment. 
of just how our focus is being divided. And once we have lost focus on something, it's very, very hard, if not impossible, to recapture that and get that information back. So establishing those ideas, getting students aware of it, invested in them, and getting them thinking about, all right, so how does this relate to very practical questions like, you've got a cell phone, and you're in a class of 200 students, and you've got five friends texting you, what do you do? Or what if you're sitting next to that neighbor in this large class, and they've got their laptop going, and it's distracting you, or even low-tech stuff like conversations. That's an issue that's been around forever. So getting students kind of thinking ahead about that instead of just kind of reactively or worse, depending on the teacher, to tell them what to do in this situation. So those are some of the ways in which I was trying to weave together the teaching of some basic aspects of attention and cognition with, all right, you're the student here. How are you going to handle this in your day-to-day life? How have your students who have completed the module change their behavior, use this information in a practical way? Well, just with so many of our teaching interventions that we do and our student initiatives that we do, I got to say, it is very, very hard, not impossible, but that's going to be a much harder and more long-term process of determining what changes in terms of actual behavior, the choices that students make. And I want to be real upfront here that in putting together and running this module, while we have done some basic empirical work on things like attitude change and knowledge change, I don't know. I don't know if students are more likely to turn off their cell phones and put it in their backpack. But I will say that what students say and do in the module itself is quite encouraging, quite eye-opening. I mean, we ask them, and we could talk a little bit more about the design in maybe a minute, but we ask them at the end to tell us, all right, what is your plan going forward for managing your own attention? What's your plan for having you manage your technology instead of your technology managing you. And I am always surprised at the sophistication and the commitment that they express in these things, how they really personalize these concepts. So they will say, from now on, I really am going to put my phone in airplane mode, or I'll use the do not disturb function. So if there's a real emergency, my mom and dad need to talk to me, here's what I'm going to do. Or a lot of what we exchange ideas on towards the end of the module when we say, what's your plan, are what's kind of ironically technology to manage your technology. So there are a range of other things that students can do, apps that are out there that will do things like give an auto bounce back message when you're in class. They'll shut down certain problematic sites. That's a favorite of mine because I definitely wouldn't have any of this writing or any of this work done if I didn't have a few checks on my own internet usage while I'm using my laptop. So you can make very concrete plans to do that as well. So those are some of the things that students say about their future behavior as a function of this class. But yeah, if we look at something, I mean, I do hope perhaps in the fall when I have a new student coming in to look at things like longer term differences in, say, GPA, but those global measures, it can be very hard to discern the influence of something like that. But I do think that's kind of the next step with this project. In terms of the motivation for this, one of the things you've done is, I believe, you've looked at the relationship between the counterproductive belief scale and multitasking behavior in a convenience sample that you had worked with. Could you tell us a little bit about what you were looking at there and what you found? Yeah. And, you know, just to give a sense of how those measures fit into all this. I mean, part of what I've really enjoyed about this project as well has been the fact that it's an opportunity to gather some data, both those qualitative impressions from students, which are so incredible to have students speaking in their own voices, their own experiences with digital distraction. That's really neat. But we also have these 
very brief quantitative measures that we developed as part of the project and built in originally just as part of the assessment, but they have really become part of my research as well. So the counterproductive belief survey is a short 20-question set of items that break down in three big group or subscales. And they tap into what do people know and believe about their own attention and memory. So things like quizzing yourself is a good way to remember information. And if we remember back to uh, the podcast that we did together on retrieval practice, that's such a bedrock idea about how attention and memory works. And it's primarily an area of memory, but it relates to attention in that we kind of can contrast that with another item that says, oh, rereading things or skimming things in your notes is a good way to learn. So that effortful, attentive processing is really important for memory and other things like really passive, just seeing something go by doesn't help you remember. So that's the sort of thing that is tapped by that scale. So we look at what do they know about attention and memory? What do they know about attention itself, like how limited it is and so forth? And there's actually another piece of it, too, that I've termed self-exceptionalism. The idea that, well, you know, other people might have a hard time texting and driving, but I'm really good, so I can do that. I'm better than most people at dividing my attention across different areas. What I should say as well that this scale, too, was really inspired by some concepts in an absolutely fantastic book by Christopher Chambers and Dan Simon, two attention researchers called The Invisible Gorilla, How Our Intuitions Deceive Us. So I went into that book and kind of pulled some of their core concepts to turn that into this counterproductive belief survey. So that's when we can survey people and kind of, what do you know? Now, the multitasking behaviors inventory was a self-report survey that looked at how often people said they multitask with certain kinds of media or online types of things and how they did that in different day-to-day settings. So we could kind of cross those in a way so that we could ask, how often do you do email that's not relevant to the task at hand? And how often do you do this in classes if you take classes? How often do you do this at work? How often do you do this in social areas? And then we could go through those same situations with other things like casual gaming or social media or things like that. So we could also query people and get that sense of what they said about how frequently they found themselves doing this in day-to-day life. And in the survey that we ran with Worldwide Convenience Online Sample, we did find that there was a relationship between what people believed about attention and memory and how often they said they did these multitasking behaviors, which just establishing that, yeah, beliefs relate to behaviors, at least self-reported behaviors, I think that was an important step. And we found that in particular, that correlation, that relationship was strongest for the part of the counterproductive belief scale specifically relating to attention. And that makes sense. So yeah, if I understand attention a little bit better, if I know, oh, hey, this is limited and I'm not even going to (laughs) know that I'm distracted until it's too late, then hey, I'm less likely to say, yeah, I sit in class and I do email because what could it possibly matter, right? So that's something that we kind of uncovered and revealed as part of this project. You mentioned the development process. Could you tell us a little bit about how this project was developed and how it's evolved? And the design process for this, since it was just a project we put together spontaneously out of interest, we had a lot of opportunity to just go about it in a completely fresh new way. It wasn't like being handed a course redesign project or a new class developed where you kind of have a rut that you're already in. So with the design process, I worked really, really closely with John Doherty, who, again, put in so much of the intellectual power behind this and made so many of the key design decisions and helped me with that. So we worked together to really talk about 
okay, here's sort of what we want. Here's our philosophy. And then he, and again, with input from other instructional design colleagues said, okay, how about this particular resource? How about this particular way of setting this up in the learning management system? And there were just things that I would never have thought to come up with. So with the philosophy or grounding principles of what we wanted, we wanted to show, don't tell. We did not want it to be just this flat website that was like, okay, here's a list of 20 things that I'm telling you not to do. (laughs) That we wanted students to have this experience of exploring this on their own and have these surprising and interactive demonstrations. We did want to have those very selective curated set of principles about attention that we wanted to convey. And we didn't want it to be academic. This is not a psychology course, not the way it would be taught in the psychology class. But it was very, very important to me that everything that we conveyed to students be grounded in science. And if you just Google attention and attention demonstrations, you're going to get lots of fun stuff off the web. But this is an area that I already knew there was a tremendous amount of misinformation. So everything had to be top-notch in terms of what we were telling students. And we also wanted it to be something that had an open resource feel to it, something that we could kind of take apart and share with other people that wouldn't be this one specific package that you had to either, heaven forbid, purchase or that would be very hard to convey. We wanted to be something that could be used in a lot of ways by a lot of people and adapted. So that's what we wanted to do. And our design philosophy kind of converged too on this being a little bit like a MOOC, a massive open online course. So it's got that flavor as well. Because it's not part of my teaching load or anybody else's, it has to be something that this does not result in a lot of papers or exams for me to grade. That's just not feasible. It has to be something that can be run with just very light interaction from me. So that's what we were going for. So with that, it became this really creative, open-ended process. They said they would come up with research and say, hey, here's this video I found. I would say, well, no, it doesn't really tie to this or it kind of conveys this in a way that I don't like or, oh my gosh, that's wonderful. Just for an example, John and his colleagues came up with one of the videos that I will talk about a little bit. It was put together by a driving safety initiative in Belgium. <laughs> it's actually subtitled. And it's this crazy thing called the text and driving test, where it's, it's sort of like an online prank where a student taking a driving test is set up to believe that now we're asking everybody to text while they drive around the driver's training course. And havoc ensues and the students are yelling and saying, there's no way this is safe. Nobody can do this. And that is something that I would never have thought to put in there. But that is something that students can definitely relate to since many of them have only recently learned to drive and they know about the dangers of texting and driving, which while it's not learning specifically, it does kind of tie back to that idea that when we're distracted, we're oftentimes the last to know and the consequences are disastrous. So that's how this process played out. Can you talk a little bit about how the faculty have responded? You mentioned that a lot of faculty are using it as extra credit assignments. And obviously, if it's got distribution beyond just your institution, people are obviously engaged with this. But can you give us a little more specifics about what faculty are seeing the student benefit of doing this in their classes? Here, too, this is something where really systematic impression is a project for the future. But there's absolutely a voting with your feet component to this. My fellow faculty have been so willing to incorporate this into their classes, especially those who are teaching the STEM classes. As I said, those really tend to be pretty popular. They are really, really careful about where they put their class time. Their classes are so sequenced and there's so much in them that they're not going to sacrifice a moment or a point if they don't believe that this is something that they really want to get across to their students. 
And I think this is reflected in some of the numbers, which I just drew up as of today, since we have students coming through this module all the time at NAU. We've had 4,481 unique users since the inception of this module, and about 3,100 have gone all the way through and completed it, which for a MOOC, that's a pretty good completion rate. So faculty's willingness to really incorporate this as a core part of what they're offering students, I think, speaks very highly. And again, I'm grateful to my colleagues because this sort of thing would not work if faculty don't really endorse it and not just with, hey, you can do this, but I will give you credit for doing that. Another part of this too, though, I think, and especially for those people who might want to try to replicate something like this with their institution, is really needing to look at it from that faculty side as well of how can we make this a really kind of painless and low investment proposition for faculty. <laughs> so, you know, being able to really assure them that, yeah, students are getting something where the science has been vetted, it's going to pay off for the time invested, but also they don't need to grade or support it. And it's not that they don't care about this issue. It's just really they're as stretched as they can be. So what students actually get at the end is a certificate of completion. So it's something that our learning management system makes it very, very easy for them to just send right to their professor so the professor can mark them down for extra credit. So streamlining that last piece of it, I think, has been very helpful, too, for getting that positive faculty reaction. If faculty would like to use this or to use this approach, how can they go about doing that? Well, let's see. I think, first of all, I really encourage faculty to get a grounding in some of the basic issues. And it's not something, even as a cognitive psychologist, I'm not going to say, oh, go out there, make a deep dive into the journal articles on this. There are by now some really high quality resources that talk about student distraction in a reasoned and evidence-based way, which is so important. I would encourage them to consult, first off, Jim Lang's excellent Teaching Distracted Students series that has come out in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And he's just been a really great voice for this, for giving a balanced, reasoned take on the issues. So I think getting familiar with that. Now, really playing around too with like what we did to say, well, what would be the best way to engage students in this with that engagement idea being really key here? And we've had such success with this MOOC approach, this online module approach at NAU. If they would like to do something like that, of course, I say get in touch with your local e-learning center and instructional designers to look at that. There's just no way that I could have put together something like this without that kind of input to set up the design in the way that we did and to come up with all these innovations. So seeing whether there's some productive collaborations that could be done there or perhaps with the library leadership and staff as well. So having an idea of what does your initiative look like, what approach you're going to use, how are you going to get it out there to students? Is it going to be to the faculty as we do or something else? Now, if they would like to specifically take advantage of what we've developed as far as attention matters, contacting me directly by email or any of my other (laughs) modalities is the way to go. Now, what we have is not a slick commercial type of module that you can just pop open, but we have all of our materials unbundled, everything from the self-assessments that students can take, the different surveys that we developed if they want to use those, the very short conversational introductions and summaries that I wrote. You're welcome to those as well. And we can help you to an extent to put that together or give you what you need 
to create something like this in your own learning management system. And so we've had some colleagues who've been really willing to do that and to put their own spin on this and make it work for their own students in their own environments. So that's something that you can do as well. We have a chapter out in a publication that's free online. It was put out for Society of Teaching and Psychology that talks a little bit more in depth about the different pieces and some things we found as far as attitude and belief change. So that, I think, is a good general appeal reading that you can do. And we'll have hopefully some more publications coming out on this. And of course, I can always come to my website or talk to me if you'd like to do a more deep dive put together a workshop for faculty or anything else like that on this issue of distraction for students and how to build students' skills in this area. I've really come to believe that this is a metacognitive skill for the 21st century. There's so much discussion and debate about what sort of policies should we have? What do we tell students to do or not to do? And I just think we need to come at it in a different way of looking at this as something that students need to master for themselves to understand for themselves and really make their own plan for how this is going to be a part of their life, kind of managing their own distractions and what they should know about their own minds. So I'm always really, really happy to share more and to talk more about this because it is just such an issue that I care so much about. And as one of the campuses where Michelle has given workshops, we'd also encourage you to contact her about giving a workshop on these or other materials. It's also a topic that like many others, like learning how to learn and other things that we've talked about with you, Michelle, and also other episodes of the podcast, students don't innately know these things. I think sometimes the assumption is that we know about attention, but there's lots to learn about it. So you got to meet people where they're at and remember that that's not necessarily something that they know about and maybe be willing to spend some time on these issues because in the long run, it might help them engage in whatever subject matter you're hoping to get them engaged in. Absolutely. And they'll be more productive in their rest of their lives because these distractions are not going to be going away anytime in the near future. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we're all completely on the same page as far as those ideas are concerned. We always end the podcast with a question. As you know, what are you doing next? One of the big things, my big project for the summer is to continue hopefully revising and getting out there an article that does go into more depth about the impacts of the project itself. And I'm spending a lot of this upcoming summer pushing a lot of different kinds of learning-related research projects ahead. I've got quite a few things in the cooker, and I love them, but that's how the summer is going to go. I am continuing in particular to work on some neat projects having to do with virtual reality for education with the immersive VR lab we have at NAU. So that's all part of this kind of big complex of interest that I have around the mind how we take in information and teaching and learning. I'll be continuing to work with faculty doing some speaking and some workshops, and I will be tackling my own long, growing, and rather intimidating reading list at this point. <laughs> so much good work is coming out now, so many books, so many articles. So I'm really looking forward to continuing to get through those this summer. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I think faculty will engage with your materials, but also just think about attention as a topic that they might want to tackle with their students. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, always a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on tforteaching.com. 
Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Kim Fisher, Chris Wallace, Kelly Knight, Joseph Andrew, Jacob Alveson, Brittany Jones, and Gabriella Perez. Thank you.